History, the show that brings you fascinating stories from Boston history. This is episode 38, King Solomon's Reign. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to talk about Charles King Solomon, also known as Boston Charlie, whose criminal enterprise placed him at the head of organized crime in Boston throughout the Prohibition era. He reached influence at the national level, set policies in place that led to the tragedy at Coconut Grove, and in death, left a wake that may have led to the rise of Whitey Bulger. But before we talk about the king, it's time to take a look at what's coming up this week in Boston history. Monday is July 24th, and on July 24th, 1920, the Boston Post ran a story about an Italian-American businessman based in Boston's North End. On the face of it, he offered recent immigrants the opportunity to invest in a postage exchange scheme. His company bought coupons that were redeemable for postage stamps. By buying the coupons in countries with economies that were still reeling from World War I and redeeming them in the U.S., he could make a small profit. However, the claims he made were much grander than the modest profit. Here's an ad his company would run in local papers in English, Italian, and Portuguese. Notice, do you want to get rich quick? See our agent, Charles Rattucci, upstairs in Plymouth Theater Building, who will explain how you can get 50% profit on your investment, payable in 45 days from the date of investment. Yours truly, Security Exchange Company. Naturally, the promise of a 50% return on investment in 45 days seemed newsworthy, so the Boston Post ran a front-page profile of this genius businessman named Charles Ponzi. After that July 24th profile, the Post ran a series of increasingly skeptical front pages about Charles Ponzi and his scheme. Eventually, they caught the eye of state and federal regulators, who decided to see just what kind of investment business Ponzi was running. Of course, it turned out that the Security Exchange Company was using the money invested by new members to pay the promised returns to the original members. An audit would find that the company had only purchased $61 worth of postal coupons. Ponzi would eventually serve three and a half years in prison on federal mail fraud charges and seven years in Charlestown Penitentiary on state fraud charges. Upon being released in 1934, he was deported back to Italy, but his name lives on as shorthand for every future pyramid scheme. On July 25, 1722, Governor Samuel Shute gave a speech condemning the Wabanaki tribes in Maine and their French allies. Remember that Maine was part of Massachusetts at that time, and Massachusetts was in constant conflict with France over where the border between New France and New England should be drawn. In the treaty that ended Queen Anne's War a decade earlier, the borders were not clear. Furthermore, the Wabanaki people weren't parties to that treaty and didn't feel bound by it. They claimed an ancestral right to the land that Massachusetts now claimed for itself. In the meantime, a Jesuit missionary named Sebastian Rall was building Catholic churches in native villages in the area claimed by Massachusetts, while denouncing the British from the pulpit and warning the Wabanaki against coming to any accommodation with them. At the same time, Massachusetts families continued to settle along the coast of Maine and Nova Scotia. In the context of this powder keg, Governor Shute's speech was a declaration of war. Shute then left the province, and acting governor William Dummer led a war against the Maine tribes and their French allies that would last three years. This was the third war between France, Britain, and their native allies in what's now New England. It's known alternatively as Dummer's War, Greylock's War, or Father Rawls' War. Father Rawl himself will be killed in the fighting. 
In the resulting treaty, the Wabanaki would be driven out of their traditional homelands, while the Mi'kmaq and Maliseet tribes were formally recognized in Nova Scotia. There would be three more French and Indian Wars before France finally ceded its North American claims in the 1763 Treaty of Paris. Wednesday is July 26th, and we wish a happy 220th anniversary to John Quincy Adams and Louisa Catherine. In 1796, John Quincy Adams was a 29-year-old diplomat posted to The Hague as the U.S. Ambassador to the Netherlands. While he was on a diplomatic mission to London, he met Louisa Catherine Johnson. Louisa had been born in London to a mixed American and British family, but was mostly raised in France as the family took refuge there during the Revolutionary War. She became so comfortable there that she had to relearn English when the family later moved back to London. She also learned Greek and read widely in several languages. John Quincy, himself a well-educated polygot, was taken with her immediately. They courted for six months as he shuttled back and forth between The Hague and London, then put their wedding on hold for almost a year after he proposed. Adams insisted that the courtship had taken too much time from his diplomatic duties and buckled down in the Netherlands while they continued the courtship by letter. Finally, on July 26, 1797, John Quincy's diary records, At nine this morning, I went accompanied by my brother to Mr. Johnson's and thence to the church of the parish of All Hollows, where I was married to Louisa Catherine Johnson, the second daughter of Joshua and Catherine Johnson. We were married before 11 in the morning. Decades later, an aging John Adams would describe the marriage as the most important event in his son's life. Louisa made a formidable diplomat, as John Quincy went on to be ambassador to Prussia and later to Russia and Great Britain, with a stint in the U.S. Senate in between. After serving as the U.S. Secretary of State, John Quincy would be elected as the sixth president of the United States. If John Quincy is often described as the most experienced and qualified president ever elected, certainly Louisa Catherine's experience navigating the courts of Europe put her among the most experienced first ladies. And until Melania Trump, she was the only first lady to have been born outside of the U.S. On July 27, 1797, workers drilling a well at Boston's Long Wharf uncovered a packet of gas that nearly killed three men. The salt water of the harbor was being held back by clay and temporary pier materials while a freshwater well was being drilled. The record describes the different layers of soil the workers hit, then it talks about what happened when they reached about 27 feet down. Up to this point, the pit was being dug by hand, and the workers had reached a layer of mostly organic material. There was a terrible fetid smell and the workers in the pit began to feel lightheaded and got out of the hole. Hours later, a foreman came by to take measurements and insisted on being lowered into the hole. He had been at the bottom but a few minutes before he was seen to fall and remain without motion. His condition alarmed the other workmen, and one of them, whose name was Bunting, was let down with a small rope in his hand to pass about the body of Mr. Tileston in order to pull him up. But before Bunting was able to make the rope fast, he fell. Although the danger was now known to be very great, the anxiety to save the two men who were in a dying condition was superior to the danger. A Mr. Hancock, contrary to the advice of all present, went down, but no sooner reached the bottom than he fell with the other two. There were now three men lying apparently dead on the bottom of the well. A seafaring man whose name is Clark came to the place at that moment, and would have gone immediately down had not Mr. Jonathan Balch, who furnished me with the materials for this communication, prevented him, until, by an experiment which he had tried on like occasion, he might lessen the danger. A common mat, such as merchants wrap about bales of goods, was fastened to a rope and let down. 
By working this mat very quick up and down, the heavy mephitic air was so mixed and diluted with the more pure air in the upper part of the well that the men who lay in a dying condition at the bottom experienced the benefit. In a little time they showed appearances of life by moving their limbs. Mr. Clark was then let down, and by taking one after another in his arms, he raised them from the horrible pit in which they must have soon died had not timely aid been afforded them. It's a story of heroism, science, and history, and it's found in an article with the delightful title, An Account of the Deleterious Effects of Mephitic Air, or Marsh Miasmata, Experienced by Three Men, July 27, 1797, in a well on the Boston Pier. Truly one of my favorite stories. Friday is July 28th, and on July 28, 1629, the shareholders of the Massachusetts Bay Company met in London to discuss the terms under which their colony in the New World should be settled. All the normal business of the shareholders was concluded for the day, and the meeting was wrapping up when Governor Matthew Craddock reads certain proposals conceived by himself, namely, that for the advancement of the plantation, the inducing persons of worth and quality to transplant themselves and families thither, and other weighty reasons mentioned, to transfer the government to those who shall inhabit there, and not continue the same subordinate to the company here. This occasions some debate, but they defer the consideration and conclusion to the next general meeting, and agree to carry the matter secret, that it not be divulged. This proposal would result in the Cambridge Agreement the following month, in which members of the company who were traveling to the New World agreed to buy out the shares of those who would stay behind in Old England. Massachusetts Bay then became unique among Britain's North American colonies in that it was the only one with local control. You could call this meeting the root of the tradition of self-government in New England. This tradition was seen in resistance to the dominion of New England in the late 17th century, then expressed in the Suffolk Resolves in 1774, defending the right of Massachusetts self-government. Finally, almost 150 years after Craddock's idea, the right of self-government was enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, which denounces George III for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our government for suspending our legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. In a meeting of the selectmen of the town of Boston on July 29, 1772, many topics were discussed. They fixed the price of bulk wheat and bread. They appropriated six pounds to Jacob Bucknam for carting stones. They voted to widen a street and set money aside to repair pavements. But perhaps the most interesting order of business was a new committee that was formed. Mr. Austin appointed to make an inquiry of the town's council relative to the disorders committed by strange women in King Street. Now that sounds like a fun inquiry. Finally, Sunday is July 30th. In the winter of 1873-74, Harry Wright, manager of the Boston Red Stockings, was looking for ways to drum up international interest in the game of baseball. He was convinced that he could get the British on board with our relatively new national pastime because he had been so impressed by the ease with which the new game replaced cricket in America that he was led to think that British sportsmen would, if they saw baseball played at its best, undergo the same conversion. His star pitcher traveled to Europe and made arrangements for a series of exposition games between the Red Stockings and the Philadelphia Athletics that would visit England, Scotland, Ireland, and France. At each stop, the baseball teams would play against one another 
Then they would also play a game of cricket against a team in their host city. It was British interest in cricket games that drew meager crowds to these games. On July 30, 1874, the first game of the tour was played at Liverpool Cricket Grounds in Edge Hill. The Philadelphia Athletics won with a score of 14-11, to though the New York Clipper pointed out that the victory might have come down to a single catch. In the 10th inning, Anson made a brilliant catch, which cut off all chance of a victory for the Reds. For, had he missed it, they would have scored three more runs, sure. Only about 500 cricket fans turned out to see the game. The rematch, played the next day, drew only about 200. A decade later, a world baseball tour would travel from the U.S. to Hawaii, New Zealand, Sri Lanka, Egypt, and finally Europe. When they arrived in England in 1889, the response was, again, lukewarm at best. An American diplomat posted in Manchester would later write that these early efforts to bring baseball to Europe failed because the game of baseball was not understood, and in the short hour or two devoted to the exhibition matches, but little idea of it could be acquired by the bewildered spectators. To be honest, that's pretty much how I feel about it today. But we'll still go for a Fenway Frank. But now, let's turn to our main topic, the reign of King Solomon. Unfortunately, very little is known of Charles King Solomon's early life. He was a Jewish-Russian immigrant who was born sometime around 1884. It's unclear when exactly his family immigrated and whether they settled in the West End of Boston initially or in Salem. To give some context, it's worth noting that the Solomons were part of a wave of immigration that began with the Irish in the 1840s, but a generation later turned to a predominantly Jewish population by the 1880s. While we have no reflection from King Solomon on his humble roots and his migration to Boston, Mary Anton, a Jewish-Russian immigrant who grew up in the South End, tells of this experience in her book, The Promised Land. In it, she reflects on the opportunities afforded to Jewish immigrants in Boston, as opposed to the oppression experienced in Russia. In one passage, she describes visiting the Boston Public Library and reading the inscription, built by the people, free to all. She writes that an outcast should become a privileged citizen, that a beggar should dwell in a palace, this was a romance more thrilling than any poet ever sung. This is the romance that became King Solomon's life. His father purchased a theater, which allowed him to grow up middle class. In his teens, he worked as a counterman in his uncle's restaurant. However, by his early 20s, he became involved in prostitution, fencing, and bail bonding. His police record began in 1911, at roughly age 27, for operating a house of ill repute. Arrested 21 times, he only went to prison once, for suborning perjury when he was on trial for narcotics charges. He was sentenced to five years, but was released after 13 months. The influx of cash from his illegal activities allowed him to invent himself as a successful businessman who had come to own at least three Boston theaters, several nightclubs, restaurants in neighboring towns, a hotel in New York, a factory in Brooklyn, and a nightclub in Montreal. The king became a local celebrity, dashing, charming, polite, and always elegantly dressed when he appeared at his clubs with vaudeville stars. This lifestyle came on the wave of prohibition in 1920, which provided the perfect storm for organized crime to cement itself in cities across America. Prior to prohibition, mafia groups limited their activities to prostitution, gambling, and theft, similar to Solomon's early crime activities. When bootlegging emerged in response to a profitable black market for alcohol, the opportunities for financial gain were immense. Prices for alcohol increased significantly, and so did demand. In the previous saloon culture, women rarely drank in public, aside from the adventuresses of the night. 
With the rise of the speakeasy, more and more women began to tipple without judgment. Now it was wrong for everybody to drink, so why not join the fun? While Boston doesn't have the same gangster reputation as New York or Chicago, the black market was flourishing here too. Within a few years of the start of Prohibition, King Solomon controlled the majority of illegal gambling and drug trade such as cocaine and morphine. Solomon acquired the Coconut Grove nightclub in 1931, which became the jewel in his crown. The club opened in 1927 as a partnership between two orchestra leaders. Solomon came on to provide financing and the connections necessary to bring in liquor. Always focused on the bottom line, it was Solomon who instituted the practice of locking the club doors from the inside. This led to horrific tragedy when the club caught fire in 1942, which we'll discuss in next week's episode. The King's empire, by this time, hinged on bootlegging, or rum running. He developed relationships with Canadian distillers, as well as manufacturers from Europe and the Caribbean. He had significant connections to the Bronfman family, the owners of the Seagram's distillery in Montreal, also with Russian Jewish ancestry. Leaving little outside his control, Solomon owned a fleet of boats that received their orders from radio stations he operated along the coast. While we couldn't track down details as to how exactly his stations operated, we did discover an interesting method used by Roy Olmsted, king of the Puget Sound bootleggers. In 1924, Roy and his Canadian wife Elise started Seattle radio station KFQX, with studios built in the Smith Tower in Pioneer Square, which were rarely used. For the most part, Elise ran the station out of their home. And typical of stations at the time, it had a variety format. The most popular program was Aunt Vivian, where Elise, as Aunt Vivian, read bedtime stories for children beginning at 7.15 at night. Within the stories, she inserted coded language as signals for her husband's bootlegging network. Now, King Solomon reached enough prominence on the national level to be accepted into the Big Seven Group, an East Coast criminal organization active during Prohibition. The group initially consisted of seven Jewish, Italian, and Irish-American gangs on the East Coast. Following the announcement of the Volstead Act in 1919 to carry out the 18th Amendment, Bootlegging led to gang wars in major cities across the country. The steady flow of shootouts and bombings cost the bosses money, creating the need for the Big Seven to serve as a centralized office of sorts, ensuring a fair distribution of bootleg liquor, reducing costs for supplies, and protecting shipments. I'm going to read this list of the original members really just because I like saying their names so much. We had Enoch Nucky Johnson, Abner Longies Wilman, Moe Dallitz, Waxy Gordon, Harry Nig Rosen, Danny Walsh, and Johnny Torrio. King Solomon joined with a later wave of members as violence was beginning to lessen in the Mid-Atlantic area. The Big Seven group prompted the gathering known as the Atlantic City Conference in May of 1929, which King Solomon attended, one of a handful of delegates from Boston. The conference was hosted by Meyer Lansky, the Jewish-American crime syndicate boss, Italian-American mobster Johnny Torrio, Charlie Lucky Luciano, and Frank Costello. The organizer was Atlantic City and South Jersey crime boss Enoch Nucky Johnson, who provided the hotel accommodations, food and entertainment for all, and made a guarantee of no police interference. No formal records of attendance were kept, but it was guessed to be well over 50, 
from cities as far away as Kansas City and New Orleans. Al Capone himself was in attendance. King Solomon rubbed shoulders with the best in the business. But there were some notable absences. Two of the underworld's most powerful leaders, Giuseppe Joe the Boss Masseria and Salvatore Maranzano of New York, were not invited. The old guard maintained traditional old world ideals and business practices that restricted them from working with other ethnic gangs outside of the Italian underworld, which ran counter to the ideals and principles that the leaders, such as Luciano and Torrio, wished to express to the other delegates in Atlantic City. We don't know where King Solomon lodged in Atlantic City, but the conference started off with an embarrassing gaffe. Nucky registered the incoming guests at the exclusive Atlantic City Breakers Hotel along the boardwalk, which then was restricted to white Anglo-Saxon Protestant clients. King Solomon would not have been welcomed there, and neither was Al Capone. Pretty quickly, the hotel's management found out that multiple guests were trying to check in with Anglo-Saxon aliases, and some delegates were refused admittance. When Nucky heard about the problem, he rushed to the hotel, and Al Capone went on a tear, raging at Nucky Johnson for not making the proper arrangements. Eventually, other accommodations were found. Interestingly, not all conference business was conducted in secret in dark hotel suites. Some discussions were held out in the open, with delegates taking off their shoes and socks and strolling along the beach. Local newspapers printed photos of Al Capone and some of the other prominent delegates as they roamed the boardwalk. It turns out that everybody likes a beach vacation. King Solomon's luck began to run dry when he faced a federal indictment for bootlegging in Brooklyn in January of 1933. He was believed to be at the center of a $14 million whiskey running operation, along with three other men. He paid $5,000 in bail and was on his way. Just a few weeks later, on January 24th, he finished up a night at the Coconut Grove and pocketed the night's take of $4,600, which, as a side note, is $87,000 in today's money. That's one night's income from one club. He was on the outs with his girlfriend, Dot England, so he took a car with two dancers and his band leader to the Cotton Club on Tremont Street near Mass Ave. The club was still hopping at 3.30 a.m. when he got up to use the men's room. A few men who had been drinking at the bar followed him in, and witnesses reported hearing an argument straight from the cheesiest gangster movie. Something about a double-crossing, no-good rap followed by Solomon saying, You got my role, now what do you want? A voice replied, You've had this coming for a long time. And shots were fired and the men fled. Solomon staggered out of the bathroom, bleeding from the neck, chest, and abdomen, and proclaiming, The rats got me! He died at Boston City Hospital, now Boston Medical Center, without naming his killers. It's a change, you filthy animal! His wake was that of a celebrity, not a criminal, with over 3,000 people paying their respects at his home in Brookline. The Boston Globe reported, Bullets sang the requiem of King Solomon yesterday and wiped forever from his face the smile that thousands knew. Police charged gangsters James H. Scully, John T. O'Donnell, John J. Burke, James Skeets Coyne, and Frank Carlonis in connection with the murder. Burke, O'Donnell, and Carlonis were tried first and found not guilty. Coyne was an ex-con and had a loose connection to Solomon as he had worked as a doorman at the Cotton Club. He pled guilty to manslaughter and robbery and was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. And nine months later, Scully was arrested and eventually convicted of robbing Solomon the night that he was murdered. 
he was sentenced to 16 to 20 years in prison. It's worth noting that two months after King Solomon's death, another of the men indicted in the whiskey running ring was also killed, leading some to speculate that these murders were related and carried out to prevent the two from turning for the prosecution. King Solomon's death may have had some far-reaching consequences in Boston history. Adam Gaffin of the blog Universal Hub explains it this way. Although Boston had had mafiosi since the early part of the century, it was really the Irish and the Jews who ran organized crime in the city. But Solomon's death, coupled with the equally violent end of the head of the Irish-led Gustin gang in South Boston two years earlier, ended any serious obstacles to the takeover of Boston racketeering by the capos of the North End, initially led by Philip Bucola and later Ray Patriarca. Eventually, the FBI decided it had to do something about Patriarca. The Irish gangs never really went away, and after Somerville's Winter Hill Gang destroyed the Charlestown Gang, the FBI made its pact with the devil Whitey Bulger. In exchange for ratting out the Italians, the government let Bulger do anything he wanted, including murdering at least 19 people, from people he thought were snitching on him to an ex-girlfriend. To learn more about King Solomon, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 038. We'll have photos of the King, the Cotton Club, and the funeral procession, as well as a diagram of the murder scene and a very informative NSA booklet on radio intelligence during Prohibition. We'll also link to two books for further reading, Boston Organized Crime by Emily Sweeney and The Boston Mob Guide, Hitmen, Hoodlums, and Hideouts by Beverly Ford. And, of course, we'll have links and sources for all of this week's historical anniversaries. Listener Simona emailed us and said, I recently came across your podcast, and I am obsessed. I was raised in Boston and adore the city. I also occasionally lead a tour of the Jewish history of the North End, and love sharing the history of the area and the rest of the city with friends in my community. Well, Simona, we'll have to pick your brain for a future episode on the Jewish community in the North End. And after our recent podcast about pirates on Boston Harbor, listener Joe Waters tweeted at us to say, Great story! And Giles Parker, who's superintendent of the Boston Harbor Islands National Recreation Area, took issue with our description of Nix's mate as a lost Boston Harbor Island. Lost Island, he asked incredulously, we still count it as one of the 34 Boston Harbor Islands, unlike Apple, Noddle, Hog, and Bird, that we count as lost. Okay, fair point, Giles. I still think it's generous to call that little gravel bar an island, but we eventually agreed that it's a rocky shoal that was once an island. Everyone's a winner. If you'd like to be featured on a future podcast, get in touch with us. You can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com, and we're at hubhistory on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. And while you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with the story of the tragic fire at the Coconut Grove nightclub.